So here's my idea. Because, let's face it, things are really bad between Jews and Arabs here in the 1930s. So my idea is, let's just separate them. Jews over here, Arabs over there, and be done with it. And crickets. Because this is not such a novel idea, right? You've heard this before. In fact, it's completely obvious to us. And this idea, what we today call the two-state solution, has been the entire goal of the peace process over the last several decades. It's not surprising anymore. But there was a time, as with all ideas, when this idea was completely new and exciting. In the middle of the Great Revolt, which ran from 1936 to 1939, a British member of an investigating committee came up with it. It was made in passing and reflected the British frustration with trying to make peace between Arabs and Jews. What if, this guy asked, what if we just split Palestine in two and created a Jewish state and an Arab state? Would that work? This idea completely blew the mind of my birthday buddy, Chaim Weizmann, and it became the focus of both the British and the Zionists for the next decade. The Arabs in Palestine completely rejected it. Since then, especially with Israel's occupation of the West Bank, it's managed to become both more controversial and at the same time, gospel. Except, of course, for the extremists on all sides, but we'll get to that down the road. You can add this idea of separation, what was called partition, to one of the major themes running through Israeli history, with the other being Jewish immigration. The perennial question is how to possibly separate two violently opposed peoples in a country the size of New Jersey. Partition has a long history. It did not start well. Get ready to be overwhelmed with information today. Welcome back to Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. The Palestinian Arabs kicked off their rebellion in April of 1936, when they executed two Jews at a makeshift roadblock outside the town of Tulkarm. The Jews quickly took their revenge, the Arabs counter-revenged, the Jews counter-counter-revenged, and by the summer, the two were at each other's throats. And the Arabs were also attacking the British, determined to force the crown to end Jewish immigration to Palestine. Amin al-Husseini was still the Grand Mufti, the foremost Muslim religious and political leader in Palestine, and the Muslim community's representative to the British High Commissioner, which ran Palestine. He was also in a struggle for power with other Palestinian families and Arab leaders, so he was trying to drive down multiple avenues. Against the Jews, he was happy to import Arab fighters from around the Middle East, organize them into guerrilla units, and relentlessly attack Jewish villages. But with the British, he tried to pursue a non-violent approach. So in the summer, with violence against the Jews at its peak, Al-Husseini called a general strike, shutting down all Arab businesses and workers. He thought this would wreak so much harm on the economy that the British would cave. And it was a great idea, but it totally didn't work. No Arab workers showed up, so we'll hire Jews. Arab businesses are closed, we'll use Jewish ones. Thanks to the Arab strike, the Jewish economy boomed, the Arab economy was in the tank, and now everyone was pissed at Al-Husseini. So he did what Middle Eastern leaders always did in the 20th century when they failed at something, blame the Zionists, and then call on everyone to protect Islam by killing the Jews. But this was the revolt, and that was already happening. So Al-Husseini needed a different way out of this mess. 
and the British offered him one. If you end the strike and stop the violence, said the British, we will set up a royal commission of inquiry where you can present all your grievances and will resolve them diplomatically. It was a good deal, and Al-Husseini took it. So the first stage of the Great Revolt ended in October of 1936. The dead stood at 197 Arabs, 80 Jews, and 28 British. The next month, this commission, which was led by Lord Robert Peel, and thereafter known by the clever name the Peel Commission, arrived in Palestine to hear from both sides and to recommend the next steps. The Zionists weren't thrilled. We've been through these investigations before, they said. We're sick of the British constantly questioning our need for a national homeland. But fine, fine, we'll do it again. And the Arabs? Oh, well, they boycotted the whole thing. Wait, what? The Arabs were the one who got the British to set up the Peel Commission in the first place, and now they're refusing to participate? Yep. When the violence first began, the British responded harshly to put down the revolt. Most of the Arabs killed in the first phase of the revolt were killed by the British. But then the British had offered to drastically reduce Jewish immigration to just a few thousand each year, hoping that would appease the Arabs. It didn't. The Arabs held to their demand that no more Jews be allowed into Palestine at all. So when the Peel Commission began, the Palestinian leadership boycotted the process in order to protest allowing any further Jewish immigration. But once they realized that boycotting the Peel Commission meant that only the Jewish version of events would be heard, the Mufti relented. And before Peel, he totally rejected any notion of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. He insisted that the Jewish presence had brought nothing but harm to the Arabs and demanded the immediate creation of a Palestinian state. And it was at this point, in January 1937, that a member of the Peel Commission made his offhand remark to birthday buddy Chaim Weizmann that everyone might be better off if Palestine was partitioned into an Arab state and a Jewish one. Weizmann loved this idea. It meant the creation of an actual Jewish state. The time has come! Plus, he reasoned, it would solve the conflict with the Arabs. As long as the British mandate prevails, he said, the Arabs are afraid that we will absorb the whole of Palestine. But a Jewish state with defined boundaries would be something final. Instead of being a minority in Palestine, we would be a majority in our own state and be able to deal on terms of equality with our Arab neighbors. Of course, there is a major downside. Remember, the Jewish homeland was originally supposed to be all of Palestine. Today's Israel, today's Palestinian territories, plus today's Jordan. Then Transjordan, as it was called back then, was split off, and the Zionists were left only with the possibility of half of Palestine. And now, with this partition idea, the Jewish state would be even smaller, only about 20% of the original territory. It would include about half the coast and most of the northern Galilee, think Tel Aviv up to Haifa and over to Tiberias. The Arab state would be much bigger, it would be folded into Transjordan, and Jerusalem would remain under British control. Populations would have to be transferred under the Peel Plan. Any Arabs left over on the Jewish side would be sent over to the Arab state, and the same for the Jews. And this is a really important point. Up to now, Zionism had never endorsed the idea of removing the Arabs as part of making the Jewish homeland. They never thought there would be a need for it. Remember the Zionist blind spot I'm always talking about that the Jews were bringing such benefits to Palestine that the Arabs would eventually accept the Jewish homeland and be happy about it. 
So why would there ever be a need to force anyone out? We're all going to get along. But now that the British were suggesting it, and now that the Zionist leaders were waking up to Jabotinsky's way of thinking, that the Arabs will never accept the Jews no matter what, the idea of transferring the Arab population out of the eventual Jewish homeland started to seem like maybe a good idea. And hold that thought for the next episode. So all this is what the Peel Commission recommended, along with a dramatic reduction in Jewish immigration. Tens of thousands of Jews were coming in. This is late 1930s, and things are not going well for the Jews in Europe. But the Peel Report of 1937 suggested limiting Jewish immigration to just 12,000 each year. The British government announced that it was going to adopt all the recommendations of the Peel Report. And this was big. It was the most significant British policy statement on Palestine since the Balfour Declaration back in 1917. The Zionists were a bit unsure how to handle the Peel Report. It was, on the one hand, a big setback, yet another example of the British caving into Arab violence. If the Jews can only bring in 12,000 people a year, what would that mean for the Jewish homeland and for the Jews under threat in Europe? But on the other hand, it was an opportunity to get that Jewish state, with actual borders and international recognition and legitimacy. What Theodore Herzl always wanted, and what Weizmann had been working on for decades, could they really let this opportunity go by? You won't be surprised to learn that Zev Jabotinsky wanted to let the opportunity go by. He and his revisionist Zionist party were pissed that the Jewish homeland territory was cut up yet again, and that the biggest portion would go to the Arabs. He maintained his unwavering belief that the Arabs would never accept any Jewish state in Palestine. Too small of a state would be impossible to defend. The Zionist Congress debated what to do and settled on kicking the can down the road. They didn't approve the Peel Report, but they didn't outright reject it. Instead, they authorized the Jewish agency, the Yeshuv's governing body, to keep talking with the British government about how exactly partition might work. Weizmann and David Ben-Gurion believed that even a small state was better than remaining a beleaguered minority in Arab territory. And they were optimistic, as Weizmann had said, that having a state would put them on equal footing with the Arabs, and diplomacy would prevail over their conflicts. Eventually, Ben-Gurion believed the Jews would find a way to expand their borders in cooperation with the Arabs. It wasn't just wishful thinking, for despite the Mufti's extremism, there were Arabs who were ready to live with the Jews. Transjordan back then was ruled by Emir Abdallah, who later became King Abdallah I of Jordan. His family are Sunni Muslims, known as Hashemites. They traced their lineage directly back to the Prophet Muhammad some 1500 years ago. The Hashemites rule Jordan to this day. His great-grandson, Abdullah II, is the current king. When it comes to the Jews, Zionism, and Israel, they lack the reflective anti-Semitism of other Arab leaders. They've almost always been more willing to accept compromise with Israel and the Jews. And although Jordan did wage war against Israel, it was almost always reluctantly and against their better judgment. Abdullah got along well with the Zionist leaders in Palestine, especially Weizmann and Ben-Gurion. He wasn't always able to deliver on the kind of cooperation that the Zionists hoped for, of course, but he was the go-to guy whenever the British were trying to resolve disputes amongst the Arabs. Amin al-Husseini hated him. 
he considered him a collaborator with the Jews, and Abdullah wasn't besties with the other Arab rulers either. They always suspected that he wanted to grab their territories in order to expand his kingdom in Transjordan, and they were pretty much right about that. So in 1937, when the Peel Report came out with the recommendation for partition, Abdullah was just about the only Arab leader to accept it. Now let's not get crazy and call him a Zionist. He liked partition because the new Arab state would get folded into Transjordan, increasing the size of his kingdom. And he very much preferred having a peaceful Jewish state next to him than that warmonger al-Husseini in charge of a Palestinian one. No love lost between those two. The Palestinian-Jordanian conflict will be just about as bad as the coming Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but no one really talks about it much these days. Egypt, Iraq, Syria, and of course the Palestinian leadership all rejected the Peel Report, as it still allowed for even a small amount of Jewish immigration. The historian Howard Sacker points out that they all had different reasons to use the Palestinian cause for their own purposes. Syria hoped to absorb Palestine into its own territory, Egypt wanted Palestine to be an Arab buffer region for the defense of the Sinai Peninsula. Iraq wanted an Arab state along the coast to export oil into the Mediterranean. The Saudis claimed to support Palestinian Arab independence. Unable to agree on all these various reasons, the Arab countries still unified around the complete rejection of Peel. No more immigration, and no more partition. If the British insisted on carrying out these new policies, said the Arabs, they would align themselves with Nazi Germany. The Nazis were paying close attention to the Middle East and ramped up their own propaganda to urge the Arabs onward against the British and the Jews. And so, by the end of the summer of 1937, the Arabs went on the offensive again. The Great Revolt entered its second and bloodiest phase. When Arab gunmen assassinated a senior figure of the British mandate in September of 1937, the British lashed out. They declared a state of emergency, kicked al-Husseini and the Palestinian leadership out of the country, and instituted the frequent use of the death penalty. The attacks continued. Arab snipers killed British soldiers, derailed trains, burned down the airport, and sabotaged just about every bit of infrastructure they could find, paralyzing Palestine. The plan to send al-Husseini away backfired. He and his merry band of rebels ended up in Lebanon and Syria, out of the reach of British forces, where they simply carried on organizing the revolt. The British militarized Palestine. They brought in 20,000 troops and the Air Force and the Navy. They also built forts that you can still find all over Israel. We use one in Sfat as a meeting point on birthright. Actually, don't forget about those British forts. They'll come into play an important role in the War of Independence later. And so pretty soon the British and the Arabs were at war. The Arabs were unrelenting in their attacks, killing several hundred British soldiers. And the British didn't play nice either. A new sheriff came to town. Where the previous high commissioner demonstrated his respect for both Jews and Arabs, the new guys seemed to hate both with equal disdain. Under his command, the British carried out reprisal raids with collective punishment, destroying individual homes, burning down entire villages, throwing thousands of Palestinians into jail and executing hundreds of them. The British killed thousands of Palestinians in the second phase of the revolt. The Arabs didn't limit their attacks to the British either. They briefly took over Jerusalem, forcing the Jews in the old city to run for their lives. Up in Tiberias, they burned to death 11 Jewish children, raped and murdered a number of women, and then killed the Jewish mayor. Jewish settlements were attacked, buses were ambushed, and the writers killed. This was the beginning of buses being used as a target for Palestinian terrorism. 
The Yishuv, like the British, found the Arab violence intolerable, especially in light of what the Zionists saw as their effort to compromise on the Jewish homeland by agreeing to a much smaller Jewish state than had been originally promised them. But by 1937 and 1938, the Jews had had enough. The Yishuv had a military wing. It's called the Haganah, which means defense. I've talked about it before. Think of it as the Israeli army before there was the Israeli army. Up to this point, the Haganah had held to a policy called Havlaga, meaning restraint. Jews were permitted to act in self-defense, but not to attack the Arabs in revenge. Partly this was to avoid angering the British, and partly this was because the Yishuv's leaders believed it to be a morally just policy. Early in the 1930s, after he had split off from the mainstream Zionist movement politically, Jabotinsky also split off militarily. He formed his own military group under the revisionist Zionist tree branch. It was called the Irgun. It reflected revisionist ideas, that Jews had a right to immigrate to Palestine, that the Arabs would never accept the Jewish homeland, and therefore only an iron wall of military force would ensure the protection of the Jewish community. The Haganah and the Irgun didn't get along very well. It's a not insignificant part of Israeli history. You'll see why in coming episodes. But throughout the 1930s, the Irgun had mostly held to the Havlaga policy of restraint. Even when revenge attacks were carried out, Jabotinsky expressed his disapproval. He felt, along with the mainstream Zionist leaders, that if partition was going to happen, better to hold back and avoid angering the British. But by the end of the decade, with the unrelenting horrors of the Arab revolt in full swing and the British waffling on the Balfour Declaration, the Irgun ditched Havlaga. They opted for another policy, which they called active defense. The idea being that a good defense is an offense. The Haganah, they said, weren't getting anywhere by just acting in self-defense. This was a war. And in a war, you have to take the fight to the enemy to break his spirit and his ability to fight. So the Irgun started retaliating against the Arabs. When an Arab murdered a Jewish child at school in Tel Aviv, the Irgun killed an Arab in a different part of town in response. When a Jew was shot while praying at the Western Wall on Shabbat, the Irgun killed an Arab elsewhere in Jerusalem. And when a Jewish bus was attacked in Tel Aviv, the Irgun tossed a grenade into an Arab coffee shop. And on and on in 1937 and 1938. Not great. And Jabotinsky wasn't super thrilled by all this. He found it morally repugnant and wished that the British would more actively support Jewish self-defense by treating the Haganah as a legitimate military force. But by the late 1930s, after the failure of the Peel Report, he felt there was no better option than to bring the fight to the Arabs. Now, not everyone in the Irgun was on board with all this. Many went back over to the other side, the other side being the Haganah. But the Haganah by this point was also modifying its policy of restraint to embrace an idea in between Havlaga and the Irgun's revenge. Instead of retaliating against the Arabs, the Haganah decided that it was permissible to preempt them. If we know they are going to attack a particular village, then it's okay to attack them first to seize the element of surprise. So the Haganah began training its fighters to conduct perimeter patrols and to stage ambushes. And in this limited case, they actually did have help from the British. Although the Haganah was technically a secret underground militia, the British of course knew it existed, and sometimes would work with Haganah in a particular operation. There was a fundamentalist Christian British officer named Ord Wingate, whose obsession with the biblical prophecies led him to be an absolute supporter of the Zionist movement. 
He convinced the British government to let him organize small Haganah units into preemptive forces. They were called special night squads, and they pushed the boundaries of the Haganah's new policy of preemption. Going beyond just patrolling the village, say, Wingate would lead the special night squads on raids to known towns where al-Husseini's guerrilla fighters were based. This kept the Arab fighters from ever feeling secure, even if they were just over the border in Lebanon or Syria. The special night squads only lasted a short while. The British decided that Wingate was too supportive of the Zionists and sent him back to England. But his special night squads, although limited in how much damage they actually did to the Arab revolt, boosted the Yishuv's morale and gave them crucial military training, which would be very useful over the next decade. But if you want to know who killed the most Palestinians during the Great Revolt, it wasn't the Jews, or even the British, although they came in a close second. It was the Palestinians themselves, and specifically the Mufti. Amin al-Husseini used the revolt as an opportunity to consolidate his power through outright murder. He had always struggled politically against another prominent Palestinian family, the Nashashibis and their allies. The Nashashibi were, like Abdallah and Transjordan, much more moderate in their approach to the British mandate and Zionism, although they were also ultimately opposed to unrestricted Jewish immigration and the creation of a Jewish state, they nevertheless supported the Peel Report and were willing to make compromises for peaceful relations with the Jews. They believed this was in the long-term interest of the Arabs. They had long sparred with the Husseini family, and the Mufti was now ready to clean house. With thousands of fighters under his command, al-Husseini unleashed many of them on his Palestinian opponents. Any Arab leader who had ever sided with the Nashashibi clan whether it was a big city mayor or a small town village elder, was either assassinated or forced to leave Palestine. Their wives and children were often considered acceptable targets as well. And al-Husseini never let go of his grudges. Even years later, and in places as far away as Baghdad, Nashashibi family members would be assassinated on his orders. By the end of the Great Revolt in 1939, al-Husseini had probably murdered 3,000 Palestinians. And so the storylines that I talked about in the last episode are converging. For the Zionists, things are going very badly. The door to Palestine is closing for Jewish immigration at a time when they are desperate to save the Jews of Europe. The Arab nationalist movement has chosen violence as their strategy to force an end to Jewish immigration and an end to the British mandate. And the British are trying to keep the lid on stability in Palestine while gearing up for what could be another massive war in Europe. It's hard to know the exact toll of the Great Revolt, but around 5,000 Arabs were killed, about 500 Jews and several hundred British soldiers. Many thousands more were injured and property damage ran into the tens of millions. The Jewish community of Hebron, which had been in the city for centuries and which had suffered a terrible massacre in the 1929 riots, was finally completely forced out. Much of the Jews in Jerusalem left too. I'm sorry to say that things are going to get worse before they get better, because now it's 1939, and Hitler is on the march. One of the most important events in Zionist history took place in 1939. But not in Palestine, and not even really in Europe, but actually out in the Atlantic Ocean. 
The event was a massive wake-up call that the Jews of Europe were facing a life-or-death struggle and the need for a safe haven. The need for a Jewish homeland with unrestricted immigration was desperate. But that same year, the British would complete the process which had been moving steadily along for some years now, finally giving in to Arab demands and closing the door to Palestine. Having thought themselves so close to achieving the Zionist dream of saving Europe's Jews and Judaism, the Yishuv now had a terrible sense that the coming years would be the most traumatic yet. That's next time. Thanks for listening. Yeah,